Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the pandemic only exacerbated chronic loneliness by creating a world of isolation and social distancing. For this encore edition, we look at Ecovillages, a unique model fostering community and connection as one possible solution. Ecovillage co-housing communities have been popular in Europe for decades, but interest here in the United States is ramping up. These communities are designed to integrate sustainability into all aspects of community living and to create strong bonds between neighbors who all collaborate in the decision-making for the group. Residents of three local communities share their communal experiences and why post-pandemic there is even more interest in this model of living. Later in the show, the price is right for many local shoppers who are buying, so to speak, what they need and want with zero dollars. It's called buy nothing. I, I've become a non-consumer probably about 20 years. We revisit how buy nothing groups across Massachusetts are cutting costs, reducing waste, and building community. But first, joining me remotely, Dave Chavette, resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, a co-housing neighborhood, part of the Sawyer Hill Eco-Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dave. Hi, Callie. Thanks. Sarah Hiley, resident of Camelot Co-Housing, also part of the Sawyer Hill Eco-Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Hi, Sarah. How you doing? I'm great. And also with me, Steve Chasen, resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco-Village in Belfast, Maine. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have all of you because this is really very interesting. I don't know where I've been. I sort of missed this whole movement, <laughs> but I'm, I'm delighted to introduce it to all of my listeners. And I want to start with you, Dave, because 22 years, one of the founders of uh, Mosaic Commons, which is a part of Soria Hill Eco Village. So you were already living I'm told, in a communal house, but this concept was expanded from that and it interested you. Why? There were a couple of reasons. We were living in a communal house, kind of like a, almost like a big uh, college frat house, if you want to look at that type of model. But those type of living situations, they don't really scale well into kind of adulthood and professional settings. So we really wanted to have a much larger community that involved different types of people, different age groups, different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and really you can't do that under one roof. So the concept of co-housing and eco-villages definitely was a model that we could see allowing us to expand the concept of communal living and shared resources in a way that would make everybody comfortable. 
So you could have set up a community like this with no eco as part of it. But eco is really very much part of the building of these communities. So explain that. Sure. When a co-housing community starts to form, usually one of the early discussions is, what are your values? What's important to you? What do you really want to accomplish? The people that formed Mosaic Commons, very early in the conversation, we decided that we wanted to build a community that was as uh, environmentally friendly, as eco-friendly as possible. So we chose things like super insulated houses, orienting all the buildings so they could take solar power very easily, things like that. It was a key component and one of the, the baseline planks of our platform, if you want to look at it like that, and all the decisions that we made as we designed the community and eventually moved into it. Okay. That is my guest, Dave Chavette. He's a resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, which is a part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Over to you, Sarah Hiley. So you knew people who were a part of this community and became intrigued. How did that happen? Correct. One of my best friends and I uh, worked together and about five years into our friendship was when things really got rolling. So uh, Camelot, as, a, as an organization community is slightly younger than Mosaic. And my understanding is at some point there were cross connections between people in both groups. And they collectively decided that it would be easier to sort of buy a parcel of land together and take some advantages there, but still make some individual decisions for the two communities. So I always refer to it as intentional community. The idea that you want to know your neighbors. Um, I lived in a condo complex in Hudson before I moved to Berlin. And I knew like three of my neighbors out of 27. Just wasn't a place where you intentionally reached out to people. People weren't unfriendly, but they weren't really friendly. Uh, so that was probably the piece that appealed to me the most was that I wanted to have my own space, like not a communal house kind of situation, but that there were people who I could walk next door and say, hey, you want to have a cup of tea today or watch a movie, do something outside, hang out around the fire pit? You know, that really appealed to me. Uh, and I was lucky enough finally a couple of years ago to be able to make that in a reality. I only moved in three years ago this summer. I want to just pick up something so people understand the difference. I live in a condo association, and I could probably go next door and say the same thing with my neighbor. But there's something else happening in Camelot housing, co-housing with you. So just explain that just a little bit more about why it's a little bit different. Absolutely. So legally, both communities are condos. We are we are Massachusetts registered condos. We you know we're an HOA. We have the same bylaws and all that stuff. I pay HOA fees. The difference is how we govern, which is by consensus. We have monthly meetings. If we don't have quorum, we can't change things. For example, all our houses are oriented. Uh, the front doors are all oriented towards each other. The parking is off to the side. You cannot just drive up to your front door. Uh, so you literally face your neighbors in both communities, Mosaic and Camelot, and my understanding, most co-housing, we have a common house. Um, in our case, we have a commercial kitchen uh, and we often do common meals together and an email list where if you say, oh, I need a cup of milk because I ran out, like within 15 minutes, someone's probably like, oh, run over to my place. I've got whatever you need. You go in knowing that you will need to interact more with your neighbors because of the way you govern, because of the way the buildings are literally oriented so that you face your neighbors. 
I just want to remind people that HOA is Homeowners Association, in case you're thinking, what is that? <laughs> All right. Now, Steve Chasen, you're a resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village in Belfast, Maine. And I have to say, you're, you're really the one that I, I thought to myself, this is so interesting, because you and your wife were living in a very isolated situation before, and you loved it. But this then appealed to you, this different model of living. Why? Well, I guess you could say we saw the handwriting on the wall. To fill in a little of the backstory, we lived on an 18-acre parcel of land where our nearest neighbor was half a mile away and the nearest town was 10 miles away. And we were approaching retirement age and could see that lifestyle was really a, a very energy-intensive lifestyle, much more suited to the people we were when we actually went there and, and raised our family. Uh, so we knew that we would have to do something different in our elder years, and we decided we'd rather be proactive about it than have something forced upon us. You could have gone to a condo association or uh, some other kind of neighborhood, but this particular kind of living appealed to you. So you're really going from very independent and solitary to intentional community, facing houses facing inward, as as uh, Sarah has described. That's a big change. It, it was a huge change. And to be honest with you, my wife and I weren't completely in agreement about the wisdom of taking that step. <laughs> it's been <laughs> a struggle for me to make that adjustment. But uh, because we came in early on, something that sort of enticed me was the idea that I could help give shape to the way things unfolded over time. And that has proven to be the case. I wouldn't characterize myself as a, as a particularly gregarious person, but I am a person who, when they engage a project, engages fully. So I'm all in. And what's been really interesting for me over the time that we've been here is to notice how I have changed as a human being and how uh, things that, that I once prioritized have shifted in response to living in this environment, both in terms of my thinking about community and my relationships with the individuals around me, and in thinking about the state of the world and how things look going forward from here and how this particular model really can make a difference most especially to the people who choose it, but in a larger sense, to the, to the communities around them and to the world at large. If you're just tuning in, this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me was Dave Chavette, resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, a co-housing neighborhood, part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Sarah Hiley, resident of Camelot Co-Housing, also part of the Sawyer Hill Eco-Village in Berlin, Massachusetts, and Steve Chasen, resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco-Village in Belfast, Maine. Now, I want to go back to you, Dave, because there are two halves underneath Sawyer Hill Eco-Village, and that is uh, on your end, Mosaic Commons, and on Sarah's end, Camelot. I don't want to get all wonked down in all the details of it. But the bottom line was there were two different communities looking to do the same thing and came together because it was made more efficient to find one big piece of land for all the 
the two communities wanted to have happen. You take it from there. Sure. That It's actually a, kind of a fascinating story. Uh, in the mid-2000s, both Camelot Co-housing and Mosaic Commons Co-housing were in the land search phase of community building. At this point, when you're building a co-housing community, you've gotten a core group of families and people who have bought in, sometimes literally, into the project. And we're like, okay, we know what the community is going to look like. We know what our values are. We're making decisions. We're spending money properly. The next step is we need to find a place. We need to know where we're going to be. A ton of decisions have already been made in the process by the time you go into land search. Fortunately, we ended up working with a consultant that realized when he found a piece of land for Camelot, he called me up and said, hey, look, we have this 62-acre parcel of land available. We had this crazy idea that we could put both communities on it. Now, Camelot is 34 households plus their common house, plus a barn. And Mosaic is also 34 households plus a common house, plus one or two outbuildings. So we're like, can we fit 68 houses on this piece of land? And our engineers were like, heck, yes, we could do that. We've never done that before. This sounds really cool. After a lot of paperwork and wrangling and conversations, Camelot and Mosaic purchased land together and we designed the entire community on it. Now, with our baseline ideas of land conservation and working with the politics of the state and with the town, the end result was 62 acres of land-ish, but only about seven acres was actually disturbed by building our households. This is really uncommon in modern building techniques. So we're, very, we're quite proud of that. So we have these wonderful open woods and fields around our property. Our communities are quite dense, which is the way we like it. Uh, Sarah, I would like you, and then I'm going to ask you also, Steve, to talk about just how your fabulous your houses are. I mean, I was actually just really <laughs> getting all excited reading about how well insulated they are, for example. So tell us about actually the living space and why it's sustainable and what you love about it. So we have a number of different size units because, of course, people came in with different needs, different family sizes. So we have one, two, and three bedroom units. And some of them have basements, some of them don't, like mine doesn't. I'm on a slab because there was a granite ledge that no one wanted to pay to blast out, which I think is very reasonable. So, so there are some compromises on some things, like all the initial uh, furnaces and hot water heaters are all in the attics, which are part of the conditioned space. But we have, you know, the really fantastic, uh, high quality, you know, Anderson windows. I don't know exactly what makes them special, but like, you know, they've got the UV treatment. Um, I've never felt a leak off these windows, which is a lot more than I can say for any other place I've lived in the Metro Boston area. Mm. One of the things that once again speaks to the eco nature of it and is different than your typical condo situation is I did not have to get permission to put solar panels on my unit last year. That's one of the things that's just assumed that when and if you were able to put solar panels on, you can just do that. You need to tell your neighbors that like it's happening so they know when trucks might be on site. But in my old place, uh, I couldn't have done that at all because of course, you know, the exterior is held in common. But because the eco part is such an important piece, like solar panels are just sort of considered something you can just do without asking permission, which is very, very cool. 
Mm-hmm. And Steve, what I'm fascinated by is, as Sarah has explained, there's a lot of variety in the houses, even though you're under the, the umbrella of uh, eco-living. So you live in an electric house? Yes. Um, all the homes here are fully electric. Two-thirds of them have uh, solar arrays on the roof. Um, all the homes were built to the German passive house standard. They actually exceed the standard in many ways, even though they're not certified as passive houses. When a home here is equipped with a appropriately sized solar array, it's designed to be a net zero energy consumer. So the panels generate as much power over the course of the year as the home consumes. And economically, the way that plays out is that your electric bill basically amounts to what it costs to keep you connected to the grid, which is in our area about $13 a month. So one of these homes with a solar array built for the house will cost you about $300 a year in total energy costs. Well, I mean, this is all fantastic. There's a couple things we need to mention. First of all, this is extremely expensive, as uh, you have noted, all of you have noted in your own way, you know, to get in on it. Once you're in, then all of the stuff that you're saying pays off for you. But it's costly, Dave. That is that is true. One of the interesting things about co-housing is there are upfront costs involved. So in a housing market, when you talk to people about home sales, they talk about the value of the house, you know, what's the resale value. That's really not what we're doing. We're not selling houses for a value or anything. We're selling a living situation or a lifestyle or whatever. So when we design the houses and when we put them all together, there's key points that need to be met. And those things are not cheap. So for example, all of Mosaic's units are classified as super insulated, which means that they have six inches of blown in cellulose insulation, plus another three inches of rigid insulation on the outside. And our roofs are about two feet thick. That coupled with triple pane glass windows means we have a very tight building envelope, very well insulated space, as Sarah is mentioning, and it's very inexpensive to heat and cool it. The running joke is we can heat an entire house with a candle sitting in the kitchen because heat never leaks out. Mm-hmm. Older houses vent because they're leaky. So they leak around the windows, they leak around. So yeah, so very tight building envelope. But as you mentioned, it's expensive. Those windows are not cheap. The buildings are not cheap. And the cost for maintaining all of this and maintaining the community is higher than what somebody else could find for what is essentially quite a small house. According to U.S. building standards and, and building norms, our houses are quite small, uh, ranging from, I think our smallest is something like 680 square feet up to about 1600 square feet in the US market, that's a small house. But because the communities are designed with shared resources and shared accessibility and shared spaces like our common house, most of us don't need things like an extra spare bedroom or a commercial sized kitchen or an exercise room or a game room. We don't need all that because that's in our common house and we all share that. And that's really what makes this whole model work. Something important about co-housing is, yes, it's a community. Yes, it's 120 people per community or however the numbers work out that all work together, live in close proximity to each other and share things together. However, many of us are introverts. It's very, very important for me to have my private 
quiet alone space. That's critical for me and critical for many people. The co-housing community absolutely recognizes that and understands that. So when you're in your home, when your door is closed, you do not need to interact with the community. They won't bother you. You won't bother them. It's a well-understood concept that people need their private space. When I want to be alone, people don't bother me. But if I want to be social, if I want to go out and meet my neighbors, if I want to do things with them, whether that's a common meal, whether that's a picnic, whether that's playing Frisbee in the field, I can, but I'm not forced to. Mm -hmm. And that brings us back to uh, what I said at the beginning, which is during the pandemic, then your communities were very much survivable in ways that uh, other people living not the way you do had a hard time because there was much more isolation and distancing. And so at least you had community if you chose, which was very different from what many people experienced, as we know, during the pandemic. Now, we want to be clear that this is not utopia in that, you know, everybody's not on the same page all the time. And that one of the tough parts of this is really sharing the governance. You do share everything, but governance at each of these places is really a group exercise. So, Sarah, talk about that. Governance-wise, that is definitely something that was an adjustment for me because I had never experienced this form of government. Um, I love it. But the meetings can be very lengthy. People can talk a lot and we don't always get stuck on the things we'll get stuck on. You know, you expect, I don't know, maybe some big budget item to take a long time. But we spent like 35 minutes the other, they're all going to kill me for saying this on the radio. We spent like 35 (laughs) minutes the other month discussing like replacement salt barrels. And it's not that people disagreed. It's just we do some of our own, I don't know, external chores for lack of a better term to save a little money. Um, Or you just can't have your snow removal people come and salt the paths every time you need it. So we have people that that's sort of one of their their chores is they salt. So they have opinions on what kind of salt barrel there should be. And sometimes I am not as invested in everything that gets discussed. But (laughs) if you have something to say, you will always be heard. And everyone is respectful. And sometimes things get really heated and people have to step back. But we have kind of, it's not like Robert's rules of, you know, whatever, but there's, there are norms for how you do this kind of governance. We use a colored card system to sort of keep order. And is this a question? Is this a factual thing? Is this, I I want us to stop right now. This is a big problem. Uh, There's a, a, we won't go into the details. People can absolutely look it up. We're not the only ones who use this, this system, but you are heard and you are respected and your opinion is respected, even if it's not agreed with. But it can be very, very lengthy. And you have to have quorum to pass important things, which means you sometimes have to do a lot of convincing. Okay. Uh, Steve, I was interested in your take on shared governance. Well, I will say that we started out using a consensus model, which works fine when you have a group of eight people around a kitchen table. But as soon as you start bringing in a bunch more folks as the community is organizing, it gets harder and harder to reach consensus. And ultimately, we had to let that go. We wound up using a sociocratic governance model, but basically it's a shared decision-making process with areas of authority kind of distributed out amongst various groups of people. 
so that a smaller group has authority to make decisions in a given realm, shall we say. So in our community, we have uh, a common house circle, as we call them. We have a land stewardship circle uh, that's responsible for the lands around us. We have a facility circle that's responsible for our infrastructure. And we have a social fabric circle that's responsible for setting up meetings, conflict resolution, and care and comfort and supporting people uh, through difficult times. And each of those larger groups is comprised of smaller circles that are responsible for more detailed work, shall we say. I'm a member myself of the Land Stewardship Circle and also the Woodland Management Circle. We take care of the forests around. There is a group that's responsible for mowing. So all the decision-making is kind of broken out and distributed, and the responsibility of the various groups is essentially to keep the community informed so that everybody knows what you're up to. And at the same time, there is a responsibility on the part of the general community members to keep themselves informed. Well, I think what is really appealing, what people would hear here, is that it, it seems to me there is very little opportunity for someone in the community to do nothing. So you all have to participate in order to share uh, the governance. It's really shared governance in that some somebody, everybody, has a role to play in order to maintain your community. I should mention that co-housing in general, this form of collaborative living, originated in Denmark and has been, of course, adapted for American tastes and and, uh, situations. The other thing I want to bring up is that you all have had successful experiences, but there have been other people, because this has drawn a a bit of interest, who have tried to start communities like this, and they collapsed, they lost money and investment. So you have to be careful, it seems to me, in how you lay the foundation for this, which, Dave, you were very careful to say took quite a long time, I I suspect for these reasons. Yes. Before I go too far down that road, I want to comment on something that Steve just said. A a lot of folks will ask when they come into co-housing, so do I have to participate? Do I have to contribute? Do I have to work on a team? It needs to be clear that every co-housing community operates differently. So a set of rules that one community uses may not be the same for others. In our case, the participation is 100% voluntary. We have members who do not participate in the community process at all. They just live here. There are few because why would you live in co-housing if you don't want to participate in co-housing? But it's not required. It's not like we we knock on their door and say and drag them to a meeting. Okay. All right. Okay. Back to your question. Yes. Setting up a co-housing community from scratch is a multi-year, multi-thousand and more dollar project. Uh, It takes enormous time and energy to go from sitting with a friend around, you know, a dinner table and going, boy, wouldn't it be cool if we both had houses on the same property? And then it grows from there. Uh, Mosaic started the process right at the beginning of 2000. We broke ground in 2006 and 2007 with our first folks moving in toward the end of 2007 and 2008. There are challenges through the whole process, not only organizational, as Steve mentioned, it's very hard to get 34 households comprising of 100 people or so to all agree on something. That's not easy. 
What do you say to those people who have heard the stories about some eco-villages trying to come together, Mm -hmm. but they never happened? Are there some questions, some red flags, some something that people should know if they are looking? Because there's a great amount of interest in this. There's a lot of other people talking about doing exactly what you're doing. What is it that you would say to them about make sure this has happened and not this or whatever? (laughs) Um, That's a very good question. So if you're starting out a co-housing community, one of the biggest challenges right at the beginning is figuring out a way to function in a way that's productive, respectful, and allows things to move forward. Those early meetings, those early structures when you're starting this out are critical to the success of a community. The, The first questions that come up are, how are we communicating? How are we making decisions? How are we spending money? How do we delegate responsibilities? These things need to be locked in right at the beginning. But the the general arc is you start making these decisions, these core foundational decisions with a small group, say three to five families. What should we take away from the failure of a place that was going to be called Rocky Corner? This was in New Haven, 33-acre plot in in Bethany, a suburb of New Haven, and all the people there were seemed to be on the same page as all of you, yeah. um, and the thing collapsed because it just they kept investing and investing, and they lost everything on their investment. So you know, we have to have that as part of this conversation, so sure. people don't say to me, "You never asked them about Rocky Corner and why that didn't work." Um, I don't know the particulars of the Rocky Corner scenario, but I suspect they were overextended financially. Uh, I'll talk for a minute about how that worked for us. The group formed an LLC to purchase the land. So that was kind of the big capital outlay at the outset. We were very, very fortunate. I think this is true across the board. Any successful group is going to have a number of individuals who have uh, a robust skill set in w- one of many areas, you know, somebody who knows something about finances, somebody who knows something about group process, all those kinds of things. Uh, we had somebody who was really good money person, and we would have regular meetings where he would sketch out the scenarios. This is what we can do. This is how we get there. We ended up building in phases. We built a cluster of houses with money that we were able to generate through the LLC and also through personal loans from individuals who are part of the project. We couldn't get uh, institutional financing. Nobody would touch us. We, We didn't have collateral to give beyond the land. Nobody was willing to stick their necks out that far. So it was all in house financing. Individual members who had some liquidity were able to to put some money forward and we built a cluster of houses. We built four or five houses at a clip and then used the proceeds from that to build the next set of houses. We were not able to build our common house until every unit had been sold. So it was a very kind of a shoestring approach, you know, this piece and then this piece and then this piece. And we were aware at every step of the process that it could crash and burn. You know, you're, you're kind of setting up a bunch of dominoes and hoping that everything will keep its balance. And it did. So I would, I would attribute the success of our group to a large extent to dumb luck. People came along who had skills and energy. Things fell into place for us. Not to say that people didn't work hard. People worked their butts off to make it happen. 
but there was there was a lot of just serendipity involved in how the whole process unfolded. Yeah, the luck factor really, Steve's absolutely right. There's factors you can control and factors that you can't control. We went through commercial bank loans to build both Mosaic and Camelot. And if you look at the calendar, you'll notice that we built 68 houses and two common houses in 2007. The worst time possible to do building construction. And we were probably within two weeks of folding. It was very, 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 very close. We almost didn't make it. So when we look at the building in Connecticut, there's definitely an element that could have been us. We were that close. I'll toss in one last little bit. The unit I'm currently in, when the community opened, my unit was actually empty because the family that was supposed to be in my unit actually pulled out. And I know that they lost some amount of, you know, not inconsiderable money because they had put in, like you had to put in so much money to sort of buy in. And then I don't know their reasons for not staying in the project, but they were not able to, and they did lose that money that they had bought in with. Mm -hmm. Last question. I think we can hear from all of you that you are happy with your decision. And I just would like to know, is this for sure that that's how you feel about it? Would you do it all over again if given the opportunity? Are you happy that you made this decision? I'll start with you, Steve. Yes, I would do it all over again. It's been a challenge and a growing experience to be sure, but it's been a very, very enriching experience. And it's hard to describe the the feeling of being together with people in the kind of the same boat, if you will. I, I think of eco-villages and co-housing communities as being social lifeboats, if you will, to, to some extent, for the uncertain world to come. You know, it's a, it's a very dynamic environment out there. And I think uh, having a, a, a community like the one I'm living in right now provides a, a, a layer of comfort and security and protection as I kind of look out at that landscape. Okay, thank you very much. Sarah? Uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. I knew I would like it. I didn't know how much I would absolutely love it. Uh, it's better than I thought it would be. It's so much better that when the opportunity for my neighbor's unit has come up for sale. I'm closing this week, but ultimately my mom will live next door to me. So that tells you how, how much I've, I've bought into this. Okay, Dave. I love my home. And when I say my home, I'm talking about not only the house I'm living in, but the community I live in and the people here and everything having to do with it. Would I do it again? I don't know if I'm ready to dedicate 22 years to doing it again. Um, <laughs> But easily the most rewarding thing I've done in my life and the thing I'm the most proud of, I got to build something from scratch with people I respect and admire. I raised my child here. I know everyone here. I know their names. I know their families. I know their foibles. I know what they like. I know what they don't like. I know things about them that in your standard HOA, I wouldn't know this about all my neighbors. I cannot imagine living anywhere else but in co-housing through the pandemic. During that time, all my neighbors were here and we were all supporting each other. 
we would pool together and say, I'm getting a grocery delivery. I need to go to the pharmacy. I have extra cucumbers from the garden. I have this, I have that. There was still this level of interaction happening with everyone. We weren't isolated. We were still all together. We couldn't go into the common house for a year and a half. Okay. We weren't sharing our houses, but we had our porches. We had our pathways. I would look out my, my kitchen window and see my neighbor walking their dog. And I would poke my head out on the porch and talk with them for a little bit. Even though we were still isolated because the pandemic was going on, I still felt connected with my community and my family. Thank you all very much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. Dave Chevette is a resident and one of the founders of Mosaic Commons, a co-housing neighborhood, part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. Sarah Hiley is a resident of Camelot Co-Housing, also part of the Sawyer Hill Eco Village in Berlin, Massachusetts. And Steve Chasen is a resident of Belfast Co-Housing and Eco Village in Belfast, Maine. Coming up, we're re-airing a conversation about how people in Massachusetts and beyond are buying everything from furniture to kitchenware without swiping their credit card. For almost a decade, Buy Nothing groups have been offering an alternative to shopping while building community at the same time. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is an encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This is part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. U.S. consumer spending remains strong, even though inflation has risen more than 8% so far this year. But even as they tighten their belts, Americans continue to shop, and there is plenty of opportunity to buy. It's time for Deals and Steals, where we have partnered with six small businesses to bring our viewers incredible savings. Tomorrow is the autumnal equinox, and we are celebrating by falling into beauty. We have some ideas for men and women this morning. First one's up, Amy. This is all about comfort. Comfort at home, comfort anywhere you need to go, even looking a little stylish on your Zoom call. But what if you could buy but pay nothing? That's the idea behind the Buy Nothing Project, an alternative to relentless spending on new products. Through hyper-local Facebook groups and an app that launched last year, residents in local Massachusetts communities can both claim and give away a variety of goods and services, all for free. Founded in 2013, the Buy Nothing Project has spread internationally, offering an alternative to shopping for items like furniture, clothing, and appliances. Here in Massachusetts, active Buy Nothing users are building community and finding an array of unique offerings. This Encore Edition revisits our conversation with two Massachusetts residents active in their Buy Nothing communities. Joining me in October was David Baker, a former administrator of the Halifax Hansen Buy Nothing Facebook group. He's now active on the Buy Nothing app. And Fern Spira, a founding member of the Pioneer Valley Buy Nothing Facebook group. She lives in western Massachusetts, where she's a member of Amherst Buy Nothing. I'm excited to talk about this because it sounds uh, so simple. In fact, it's, it, it sounds like 
so many other things like uh, community swap or, uh, um, you know, bartering. Uh, but it's none of those things. So let's first get a definition from both of you. I'll start with you, David. Okay. Yeah. The the buy nothing project. It's it's exactly that. It's about buying nothing. There's there's no buying. There's no trading, selling. Everything is is given freely, and and you can you're free to ask for anything you want. Now, how does it work? Because there's no store, quote unquote, for me to go to per se. Yeah, you, you would either join your, your local community's Facebook group or now the, the app is available to anybody, regardless of what town you live in. And you, you'd go to either Facebook or the app and post that you had something to give away. And if people are interested, they can comment and then you get to pick who you're going to give it to and then use uh, private messaging to take care of the logistics um, of where you're going to meet up, who's going to pick it up, drop it off, that kind of stuff. Okay. So Fern, I want you to add to that. Uh, and I note that you were a part of something called Free Cycle. How is that different from Buy Nothing, or is it? Um, I think they're probably very similar. My frustration with Free Cycle was always, you know, first come, first serve kind of thing. So unless you were glued to your computer, you missed out on a lot of stuff. I think the Buy Nothing had a little different spin to it in that they encourage people to wait a little bit, don't always give to the first person, engage people a little bit more. And it was more community oriented than I need this and I'm gonna take this kind of thing. All right, so how did each of you get attracted to this? So as we've said, you you had started on a different kind of platform, Fern, and then came over to to buy nothing. But but really what interested you about what that what is now described as a gift platform. So Fern, what 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 attracted you? Because you started with FreeCycle eight years ago and then moved uh, over. Well, I, I started with FreeCycle probably 15, 20 years oh, ago. Oh, okay. Let's go. Um, when they first started to to launch. What attracted me, um, I had somebody who was living in Boston who used to live in Western Mass, and uh, she had said, hey, there's this new thing floating around. Maybe somebody in Western Mass should do it. It's a very Valley thing. And if my friend Robin and I said, yeah, we should do this. What attracted me to it is um, I, I've become a non-consumer probably about 20 years. 20 years ago, I live in a community that has a great transfer station, lots of free stuff there. But sometimes I need to get rid of something right away. I know it has value. And I liked the setup of the buy nothing project in that I can offer to somebody. And I've actually met quite a few people who've become friends through this project. Mm -hmm. So what attracted me to it is I don't shop. I know I can't remember the last time I went into a mall and I try to, you know, keep, keep recycling what's available already out there. So you were uh, driven um, more by, Hey, let's stop just overbuying and over-consuming, that I can make a conscious decision not to do that. And this is a platform by which I can, um, you know, do be more conscious about not doing that, being, as you say, a non-consumer. Right. I mean, it's amazing when I need something and I put it on buy nothing, how quickly people are like, oh, I've got that. I've got that like weird stuff too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. It was really nice to see that there was that kind of active community willing to support other people. So now, David, uh, same question to you. What what originally attracted you? My, my response is um, similar to Fern's. Um, I've 
try to, to do the zero waste lifestyle. Um, we generate the least amount of trash as possible and try to be eco-friendly as possible. Um, so it's the same, along the same lines, you know, buy, buy less stuff, then there's less packaging to go with it and less stuff needs to be manufactured and, um, and that sort of thing. So I um, have learned that uh, in 2013, Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller founded the Buy Nothing Project, um, and their focus was to reduce plastics, get that out of the Earth's ecosystems. And, you know, all three of us know how much, how much plastic is wrapped up in all kinds of stuff that we uh, share and buy, really. So just by... Uh, recycling, if you will, within the groups, you can reduce the amount of plastic. So I get where they were coming from. And they refer to it as an international network of local gift economies. I'm fascinated with the word gift because there is an exchange, so there is a gift of, of sorts. Uh, but the word gift, uh, does that have any extra meaning to you, David? Or you just thought, you thought nothing of it, just, just part of the discussion? Well, I think that's that's attractive as well because everybody likes to get a gift, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and in this case, as both of you have said, you can get exactly what you want. <laughs> it's not a guess yep. situation. Um, so more than 250,000 members of Buy Nothing are in Massachusetts or were in Massachusetts as of last January. That's according to, to Liesl Clark. I'm going to imagine there are more people now. Um, and I'm curious from both of you if you think, for example, inflation, even though, as I said in the opening, people are continuing to shop. But a lot of people are stepping back to be a little bit more thoughtful about how they spend their dollars. Is inflation um, actually bringing more people to you at, that you all can see in your individual groups? Um, I'll start with you, Fern. I think a lot of people are, um, yes, are definitely cutting back. And um you know, part of the problem now, too, is that, um, you know, I live not too far away from like the, the central hub of where most people live. But with gas prices, it makes it even harder for people to even come to me to pick things up because they this happened just the other day. Someone said, you know, I'm really limiting on gas, but if I'm coming your way, I'll let you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think there's, I think it's driven up by just, you know, higher prices, but gas too, you know? Um, and I think that's, what's nice about something like buy nothing is it really is localized. So you don't really have to drive that far. So I think a lot of us are curious about uh, what kind of stuff you referred to you know, you can find just about anything. Um, I know a little bit of that from just being on my next door group. Somebody asked for some very specific musical instrument to borrow, and two or three people said, oh, I have that. I was just shocked. So I know that there could be a wide variety of items that people could offer up um, in, in, a, in a situation like this, in an exchange like this. But I'm curious, what have you seen over the years, um, Fern, and what maybe is your most unusual item that you've seen be a part of the Buy Nothing Exchange? You know, it'd be really hard for me to really pinpoint that because I have other sources similar. Like we have a town group that is amazing. And I'm, I'm always amazed. Like my bread machine died just a few weeks ago. And I said, I need a new bread machine. I had three offers for, for really good bread machines. So I think it's just a lot of basic stuff. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of strange things like people saying, we have all of these bricks that we just removed from a house and we don't need them anymore. I'm looking at something, someone's got five seashells in a box. <laughs> five seashells, here you go. I'm just, people take anything, really. Okay, David, same for you. Uh, what kind of stuff have you seen? What's the most unusual thing? What's the best thing you've gotten? Um, I've I've gotten lots of uh, good things. I got a pair of hiking shoes that uh, fit perfect. Uh, a strange thing I asked for, um, was uh, I wanted to, to kill some of my front lawn so I could add more native plants. So I needed some cardboard and paper bags to use to smother the grass with. And I posted if anybody had had some of those extras laying around. And I'm not kidding. I spent a whole Saturday just driving around, filling my car with cardboard because people were excited to get rid of the cardboard that they had laying around. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I, I have a a nice uh, native plant garden on my front lawn as a result. Um, we have a whole side table, like I had to get my friend to borrow a truck and help me move it because it's so big, but it uh, looks like it, it was in my living room forever. You know, it just like it just fit right in. Um, and again, all of this is free people. So we're talking about people freely giving, other people yeah. uh, freely being able to pick up. And as has been said by both my guests, there is some specificity to it. So it's not like you sort of go to a flea market and see a table and hope you see something you want. This is a very specific ask that can be responded to. Um, and often, as both of you have said, you get exactly what you want. Um, so part, of course, overlaying all of this, even though, as we've said, the, the, the founders were interested in reducing plastics, but in general, just because of the exchange and the reuse and the non-consumerism, as Fern has put it, you are very much now part of an environmental movement to, you know, reduce and reuse. Uh, and is that as important to you as, um, you know, the, the actual platform itself? I mean, has that become more important, I guess, is the question, David. That's always been, been important to me. Uh, to to reduce and reuse, so it, it just enhances. You know, it makes it easier to to reuse because you don't have to go buy a new thing if somebody somebody already has one and they're willing to give it to you. Mm -hmm. I'd rather I'd rather use that than than go out and buy a new thing along with all the packaging that comes with it. Good point, Fern. And you you've already changed your whole lifestyle, so clearly that was very much a part of what was driving you to be interested in this to begin with. But has it has it become even more important now? Um, it, it has, it's interesting. It's become important at the same time that I'm aging and getting rid of stuff. <laughs> so it's like, you know, for me, it's not just always the, the gifting to me, but it's, it's great that we can say we need to get rid of, you know, five bookcases and I know that people snap them up. So, you know, it's, it's great to be able to have an avenue to get rid of things that I know have high value to other people. Mm -hmm. And I would I want to echo that because I think I had no five or six friends of mine now who are seriously uh, purging. They enjoyed it, but you know they've either outgrown the the use of the item, still very good, or they're just sick of it now. <laughs> they they want to do something else uh, or have less of it. That so many of my friends now have become minimalists. Uh, exactly. So and so this is this is a great avenue for it now. 
you are able to become uh, part of these groups in your own communities. And that is because uh, you want to be able to exchange with people in a somewhat intimate area, right, Fern? Correct. Uh, I mean, because, you know, what, what, what originally happened when we started the Pioneer Valley one, it, it encompassed three, three um, counties. And then Liesl Clark said, we want to make this hyper, you know, micro, if you will. And she then said, okay, for this particular group, these, these are the areas we're going to cover. And it, it helped for people to exchange a little easier, especially now with the price of gas. Mm-hmm. Um, same for you, David. Uh, but now you less, left the Facebook group, but which I assume was more of an intimate geographic area and became a part of the app. Does the app then become broader based in terms of many people outside of any singular community can join? Yeah, the... Um... The thing with the Facebook groups is uh, you have to live within the geographic boundary that the group is set up for. For for example, Halifax and Hanson, we we had the, the two towns together make up the one group. So if you if you lived outside of those towns, you couldn't join the group. You'd you'd need to join the one for your town. But a lot of the towns around us didn't have a Facebook group set up, but they would try to join ours because they didn't really pay attention, and I'd have to. To deny them. So now with the app, you kind of become the center of your own group. So you can you can set the app by um, by a distance could go as low as a half a mile and up to 20 miles. This seems like a win 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 situation all around. What are potential downsides? David, I'll start with you. Um, I guess one of the biggest uh, downsides, like if you, you, you've got this thing to give away and and somebody says, yeah, I'll take it. But then you know, for whatever reason, maybe they don't come and get it, mm-hmm. you know, and then now you're, you're still stuck with it. That, that can happen, but we're all adults and we can, we can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same, same question to you, Fern. What, what's the potential downsides? There's, there's a, a few things. One is that um, people ghost you, mm-hmm. you know, you sit on something for a really long time or someone says, I really want it only to find out they don't have transportation mm. and then there some people expect you to deliver it mm. um so i think that that's you know that sort of can be tricky because you know you could be sitting on something for a while and then find out the person doesn't even have transportation so for me this sounds so interesting for many of the reasons that you all have said but i don't want people coming to my house so i would have to figure out how to move whatever the items are someplace that, A, if I were ghosted, I you know, it could stay there until I figure out somebody who would, would want the item. Um, and I'm not quite sure how I would do that. So I don't know if people have had that experience. It's not, I, 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 I don't know how to get around that for, for my comfort level. Otherwise, I think this is fantastic. I think the, the Facebook, um, that's one of the advantages over the, the Facebook group yeah. is um, when, when say say you decide you're gonna you're gonna give your item to Sally, you can click on Sally's profile and you can see oh we have three mutual friends mm. they're friends with with Billy exactly. and Bob mm. so so that might help make you more comfortable gotcha. having having Sally come to your house because you know if chances are she's not gonna do anything because because she's also clicked on your profile and noticed that you know some of the same people. So that could be one of the, the disadvantages on the app is you don't have that that mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. um, 
you know, sort of quick little background check? Well, it appears that it's the popularity of these groups is greatly uh, intensifying um, for all kinds of reasons. Part of it, of obviously driven by just the desire, as Fern has said, to move away from consumerism uh, with regard to supporting an environmental change and just, hey, what about just <laughs> not having to exchange money? How about getting what you want with for free? That sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm from where you're sitting, does it look like there will be many more, not just in Massachusetts, but as we've described it as an international uh, platform? Are you seeing it spread across the country now? What's what's your sense of it, uh, Fern? Well, I would say that I know that, for instance, the Northampton group, um, very densely populated, covers, you know, quite a few people. And, um, and, you know, again, I live in a very transient area. So people might be here for three years, and then they move, but they're still part of the group. And, you know, that gets tricky too. But for the most part, I would say that people, um, I think the more it, I mean, when I started this group here, it was, I was constantly putting stuff on Facebook, join this group, especially around the holidays, don't go to the mall, you know, maybe you could find what you need through somebody local. And it really did take off quite a bit. Well, I'll just close with this. There is a Buy Nothing Day, uh, International Day Against Consumerism, and it's November 25th. I'll note that uh, that's right in the middle of the the frantic holiday shopping season. But somehow I think this year um, it's going to really get quite a bit of attention for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, So I'll be looking to see that. And I thank both of you for talking to me uh, about this. And it's a good place to know I can get what I want for nothing. Thank you both for joining me. Well, thank you so much. You as well. Fern Spira is a member of the Buy Nothing Amherst Facebook group. David Baker is a former administrator of Buy Nothing Halifax Hanson and an active member in the Buy Nothing community. That's it for this Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Jesse Steinmetz and Kelly Wessinger and Hannah Ubele, And engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.